We've got to be able to do the word of God, not just speak the truth. That we must unapologetically testify that God values all life from the unborn to the disabled to the dying. If God values it, we value it. What does it really mean to be pro-life? You know, all around us, it seems like the world is on fire. There are refugees and orphans who are in desperate need of care. There's a foster care system that seems like it's overloaded. There's natural disasters and wars. And there's evils like abortion and racism and white supremacy. What does it look like for the people of God to move into those spaces and to speak up for life? If fear is keeping you from loving people who are different from you, then fear is keeping you from God. We'd like you to join us in Washington, D.C. this January 18th through 20th for our annual Evangelicals for Life event that we co-host with Focus on the Family. This two-day event will feature very compelling speakers like Russell Moore, Jenny Yang from World Relief, Johnny Erickson Tata, Rich Stearns, Jim Daly, and of course the music of Shane and Shane. I think you'll enjoy coming not just to be equipped, to be a champion for life in your community using your gifts in whatever area God calls you, but also to meet with other champions for life. And then there'll be a special opportunity to participate in the March for Life where thousands of people from around the country make their voice heard in Washington, D.C. and stand up for the sanctity of human life. So will you join us for Evangelicals for Life January 18th through the 20th and use the coupon code WAYHOME for a 20% discount. These children are not burdens. These children bear the image of God and are blessings. What would it look like to be quiet and unseen in a world that encourages us to be outspoken and noticed, to grab for our 15 minutes of fame? What does it look like to have public ministry and a platform, but also to cultivate that for the glory of God and to get away from it all at times and shut off the phone and get off social media and really work on the personal spiritual disciplines that nourish our heart and souls. Well, my next guest, Sarah Haggerty, really asks this question in her new book, Unseen, the gift of being hidden in a world that loves to be noticed. Sarah has thought about this quite often as a writer, as a speaker, but also as a mom and a wife. These are really important questions, and I ask many of those to Sarah. I think you'll enjoy this conversation. Sarah, thanks for joining me. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. I'm thrilled to be here. So I have your book here, Unseen, The Gift of Being Hidden in a World that Loves to be Noticed. So I'd love for you to just tell me kind of what was going through your heart and mind as you were thinking about this project, this book. You know, I think I lived the project 10 years in the making before I actually wrote it. And Mm -hmm. I think um, when I got to the writing, I realized for many years, God had hidden me behind circumstances and in certain settings where I kept finding myself wanting to crawl out of them. I wanted to be more seen or more acknowledged or more understood. And it wasn't until later that I looked back and went, oh, wait, this is what he used to form me. Mm. And hiddenness is actually all over the Bible. We look at, you know, Joseph and Mm -hmm. David and Paul, 
all of them having long stretches of time where they weren't seen or weren't acknowledged. John the Baptist. Um, and yet, in, I think in our current culture, because there is so much access to being seen and to having ourselves known or, or even impact is celebrated in such a great way that there's almost a, a missing piece of acknowledging that hiddenness is a part of the way God forms us. And so in writing the book, I started to realize this isn't just what I lived, but it's so common to humanity and to those of us who want to follow God that if I could just put language to this for others who are wrestling in the same way, maybe it would be a little bit easier to not only endure that sort of season, but really thrive there. Mm, that's so true. And that's one of the themes of Scripture that I really think is underdeveloped in our thinking as Christians. Like, the, the whole idea that God, you know, you think of the major people, uh, the major characters of Scripture— and how God made each of them go through this prolonged season of waiting and uncertainty and kind of obscurity, right? I mean, yes. we we think of um for instance like the apostle Paul and like yeah, he you know, he's blind on the road to Damascus and then we just kind of skip ahead and he's like planting churches and but he had this <laughs> long right. period of obscurity where it was like he had to kind of almost be in in the desert time to learn and to grow and not be a thing, you know, if that makes sense. Yeah. And we don't always hear about it. You know, Paul in particular, we see the fruit of it. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes just because of our nature, we want the fruit. We want the character. Mm. You know, Romans 5, tribulation produces perseverance, which produces character, which produces hope. We want the character and the hope, but we don't necessarily want the extended time that it takes to get there. But I, you know, in my book, what I talk about is just the beauty of it, that it isn't just a gritting your teeth and going, I got to just get through this so I can get to the real stuff of God. But there there actually is an invitation from God there to to maybe even fall in love with God. Yeah, and God, it seems like he puts us in this sort of waiting room where we don't know what's happening and there's uncertainty. That's where we really learn to trust him. I think of David too, like, you know, here he is, this young boy and Samuel comes by and anoints him with oil. And it's like, okay, back out to the sheep. And it's not like 14 years until he's king, you know? And mm-hmm. so all, all those experiences uh, are interesting. And one of the things I, I mean, I love about your book is it's very countercultural. I mean, we may be the most, I don't know how to say this, the most um, uh, visible generation history. I mean, uh, everybody, everybody has a platform, right? Um, not just, you know, it, it seemed like you'd have, you'd, you'd have public people before you always have, but everybody's got a platform with social media. And so there's oh, this- my, hus- my husband jokes and says, everybody's managing their own private PR campaign or public PR campaign. <laughs> That's exactly right. And so this book is very countercultural saying like, actually there's value to being hidden, being unseen. Yeah. I, you know, it's not, it is countercultural to where we are. And as I wrote it, I thought the dead guys all wrote about this, you know, the, the, mm. The people, the Spurgeon and Chesterton, like we read about Tozer even, we read about this from the greats. But I think in our current culture, because impact is so accessible in some ways, I think we almost translate a thriving life in God to outward impact. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I part of what started this book long before I wrote it was we, my husband and I have been in full-time ministry and loving sharing the gospel with hardened to Christ teenagers and just feeling so energized by it. But over time, I started to find that I was 
so accustomed to sharing the gospel that I would find myself in a conversation and in the back of my mind going, do I really believe this? Mm. You know, I'm talking about the love of this God that when I'm behind closed doors, I actually feel uncomfortable when I'm alone with Him. His Word is starting to read to me like a textbook. I'm finding myself dry on the inside, and yet I'm talking about Him as if it's alive for me. Mm. And so we took a stint where I literally worked in a boutique that sold French and Italian pottery. I was not sharing the gospel necessarily because the the sweet boutique was so expensive. It had like maybe five customers in a day. Mm. And so I just had long stretches of time to read my Bible. Mm -hmm. And for the first time, I thought, you know what? I'm not just going to do the quiet time. I actually want to see who God is and see how He sees me when I'm not producing. Mm -hmm. So I would be in this store, not making a sale, you know, they told me not to dust because apparently people don't like cottage dust or people like cottage dust when they're shopping. And so <laughs> I didn't I didn't clean the store. I literally just started to look in the Bible and go, how do you see me, God? What does your word say about me when I'm not making an impact for you? And it was then that I started to see, wait, Psalm 18, 19, he delivered me because he delighted in me. Mm-hmm. Zephaniah three seventeen. he rejoices over us with singing. This doesn't have to tie into what I produce for him. You know, there's such a, for those of us who do public ministry, right? You know, leading in the church in some way, speaking, writing books. I mean, I've been writing for most of my life. You know, the kind of the act of writing is an acknowledgement that we think we have something that should be shared. I mean, none of us write anything and don't want people to read it. Right. You know, and just wrestling with that. How have you wrestled with that tension of God has called me to this this kind of ministry? to write books and to be public. And yet, how do I seek that hidden life of God? How, how have you navigated that? You know, it's ironic, right? Because here I am doing an interview about the hidden life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I think for me, I have started to see just the layers in hiddenness, that there was a long stretch where I wasn't in full-time ministry and I wasn't in a platform setting and God was intentionally hiding me, I think, for me to rediscover Him there. But I've also found that hiddenness can happen in being misunderstood, which I think when you have a more public platform, you're you're subject to a lot of misunderstanding and criticism. I think hiddenness can happen among friends when your life is maybe more quickly judged and people don't see the layers in you. So in some ways, I feel like even as I've begun to write and publish my books, I've found, wait a second, there are actually layers to me, instead of trying to justify myself and have everybody in my world understand my motives behind writing, that I'm not looking to go be famous, that I don't want to develop this platform for the sake of having a platform, I can actually just let myself be misunderstood and go, God, let me find your eyes on me here. I mean, it's the same principle as when I wasn't writing publicly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I was asking God, what does it feel? I want to see your eyes on me right here. I want to know what your word says about me, regardless of what anybody else thinks. Yeah. It's so interesting. I think, you know, navigating that tension because there's a lot of talk right now about platform and Christians and the ways that we've done it wrong, but how do we, how do we do that? Well, and I don't know about you, but I've found that the people whose content or whether it's preaching or or books or or articles that have moved me the most are the people that you can tell by their writing that they're not trying to necessarily be a thing but they're just trying to be faithful to their calling and they have cultivated those those hidden times in their life so that when they do public ministry they have something to offer uh, i don't know if you found that to be the case as well yeah i think that's in some ways that's why i tend to migrate to some of the older writings because i think it was less 
you know, mm-hmm. uh, platform was less of an issue. People didn't have access to platform. And so they really were writing from a place that, that they had lived. I think for my own life, I just feel a sobriety about it. Like, I don't want to write another book that I haven't lived. And, mm-hmm. and not even just because I think that's a bad thing, but because I know my heart is alive when I am, when something's getting published that I feel like, mm. man, Lord, you did this through me. And I can really sit back and go, this was produced from my weak self. And this is the power of God through me. I want to continue. If I write, I want to be able to say that about every book. Mm. And it seems like there's a push for us, particularly in the church, to demonstrate our worthiness by what we do, right? So, kind of social media, we can measure each other by, you know, all sorts of metrics. So I'm, I'm on the right side of this issue. So I'm going to kind of project that out there, or I'm engaged in these really important activities, uh, justice issues or, or, or compassion issues or care in a way that maybe we're trying to show people that we're really good. You know, we're trying to validate ourselves by those things. There, there's, it seems like there's just a real pull yeah. For us, for oh, us Christians yeah. I, in this age, that way, doesn't it? I think so, and I think it's not even those Christians over there. I think we all feel the oh, pull. I mean, yeah. when other in when other time in history are we able to actually monitor and measure six, you know, success? And I say that in quotations. And so I think there's a huge temptation to live the outward life based upon how others are perceiving us. Um, and that's where, I mean, for me, I feel like even at this sa- stage and season of my life, there is a part of me that has start to, started to really relish when I know I'm misunderstood or when I know that I am not perceived in the way that I really am because I feel like that's the opportunity for me to really grow. Mm. I, I At the end of my life, I want my kids to be able to look and go, man, every year, every decade, mom grew in the Lord. Like we just mm. saw her growing in God. At the end of my life, I don't want them to look and go, how many books did mom sell? Because mm. honestly, I think a, a, the amount of books you sell doesn't necessarily equate to uh, your inner, a reflection of your inner life in God. Mm. And one of the things I think about often, and for me, and I don't know for you, but when you do public ministry or you're, you're sort of working um, as we are at a denominational level, or some people work for mm-hmm. nonprofits or work, do this for a living, going to church on Sunday is just for me, so refreshing and nourishing to be with brothers and sisters and the Lord, just average everyday Christians coming together and participating in the in the life of the body of Christ without, you know, thinking about who's got a blog here, who's doing this, yes. you know, and, uh-huh. you, know, you, you know, it's funny because most Christians probably don't even know who half of these people are. They don't, the last 15 controversies on Twitter, they're not paying attention. They're to. not paying attention to, you know, there's just something refreshing about that. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the byproducts of me living this, I feel like living this message, I mean, I say that with caution because I think there's so many more layers for me, but in writing the book has been my eyes have been opened more to the everyday Joe and just how the Lord sees them. I think of the mom, you know, I sat next to a woman who adopted 13 children with special Mm. needs. And I remember as I sat next to her at the table, I thought, I think this woman is the most powerful woman in the room. Mm. And she she was frumpy, and she certainly probably couldn't have a tweetable moment. I mean, she just <laughs> didn't necessarily she, – she wasn't super articulate. But I felt such a beauty about her as she reached for God when no one was looking. And I feel like God is slowly opening my eyes to how he – to his economy on a person. 
And, and I think in some ways, even in subtle ways, we dismiss the weak because we have a metric by which we think there is strength. And yet God tells us, my power is made perfect in weakness. And I, so I just feel like my eyes have been open, just like you. I'm sitting in church on a Sunday going, man, this person hasn't written one blog post. They don't have <laughs> anything viral. Mm-hmm. And yet I bet behind closed doors, the way that they care for their sick parent is moving the heart of God. Mm-hmm. I want to move the heart of God. It's harder for me, I think, I mean, harder in, in a beautiful way for me to work towards moving the heart of God than it is to try and get more followers. Mm, That's that's really good. Can you speak a little bit about the way we're tempted to find our value and worth uh, maybe in our our titles or our identity or, I mean, I mean, or in our platforms or kind of the, the way we hope people think we are instead of, you know, sort of finding in God? Because I know a large part of that, of your book, centers on that as well. Yeah. I mean, I'll use today as an example, because this is really real time for me. Um, We're going through some tough stuff personally um, with one of our children. And I found that today I like mid morning, I'm going, oh, wait a second. I checked like all the, I checked my Instagram and checked my Mm. Twitter and checked my Facebook. And I was just kind of feeling a little sick on the inside in my heart. And I pulled up and went, oh, that's that's what I do when I feel uncomfortable. Mm. I go to how I can be measured. Mm. And I just, I mean, I walked outside and had a conversation with God. I repented and said, God, I want to come to you when I feel the discomfort of things in my life. I don't want to escape through these other things. And I think to call them an escape in some ways sounds harsh and we sometimes can pin it on other people. They're going to the escape, but sometimes we just need to admit admit in our own lives Mm -hmm. Man, when life gets hard, the escape is so easy for me mm-hmm. to find my identity and you know, followers or responses to things that I've written instead of going, oh or, Lord, it's or hard. Amazon rankings or, or yeah, Amazon yeah. rankings. Yeah. I mean, personally, I have made a choice. I don't look at those, but you uh, know, that doesn't mean that I don't That's amazing that you can do that. <laughs> that you have that discipline. <laughs> it was I just decided, you know, I I want to measure the success of this book by my faithfulness. Mm. And when this book August 29th when it was released, I really felt before the Lord that I had been faithful to the call and so it was a huge success mm-hmm. regardless of the sales and I just know my flesh. Honestly, I know that if I start doing that, I'm not even saying I'm so much better. I have all the self-discipline. I'm actually saying I am the weakest. Mm. And I knew if I started looking there, all of a sudden my metric for success would change. And I wanted to be able to look at this book and have the end comment be, man, I was wildly successful because I was faithful. Mm. You know, there is a joy though, right, in in just getting to a place where you're saying, I just want to be faithful to the calling God's given me. I want to be faithful to these gifts. And, you know, wherever it leads, wherever it leads, I just want to, I just want to do well. There, there's a kind of a, there's a real joy there, isn't there? There is. I love that you said that because I think that's the thing. Sometimes we're like, stop doing that bad thing, you know, mm-hmm. social media or whatever it is. When really, like, I think our hearts and our souls come alive when we sit before the eyes of God. Mm-hmm. And I know for myself, like this, so many people have asked, what's it been like? This is my second book, you know, releasing this book. And I'm like, I looked my kids in the eye. We did a lot of family dinners. It was an awesome fall, Mm. like in terms of just really basking in. I just got to write this book and watch God move in people. And I think a lot of that was the fruit of going, I'm I want to look solely at you, God. And there's joy in that. There and there's so much more life. I think we can all say, Man, I spend a day 
measuring myself by how my writing or my creative mm-hmm. work was received. And I feel so sick after that. Mm-hmm. And there's a, there's a real joy in knowing that, you know, God loves and approves of in Christ, the real me, not the Instagram version of me or the, you know, carefully curated version of me that I'm putting out there for public consumption. Yeah. I think what's been profound for me has been, you know, I'm a mom of six, so I've got a lot of minutes that are changing Mm. the laundry and cutting onions and Mm. washing the dishes. And the way that I used to see that time, even before I had had kids, like the way that I used to see Saturday afternoon and cleaning the grout in my bathroom floor was, can I just get through this already to get to the real work of God? And I have found there is like something super satisfying in doing things that nobody's ever going to notice and I'm Mm. not going to put on Instagram and realizing that that is actually where he delights in me. Mm. That he likes me. He likes me when I'm changing the laundry. All of a sudden, I'm not like, can I just get this laundry done so I can go make a big impact for God? <laughs> exactly. Get this out of the way. Sometimes I'm I'm convicted by that. You know, I've got a project I'm working on, and you're sort of rushing your kids into bed so that you can yeah. work for a couple hours. And it's like, actually, you're, my kids are the main thing here. Everything else is, is ancillary. So uh, I, I say sometimes, you know, I can travel and speak and move a room full of women, like not me, but the, you know, the Lord Mm -hmm. through me can move a room full of women over the course of a weekend to really fall more in love with him. I love that. But man, I get my character grows when I love the adolescent. Mm -hmm. Speak a little bit about maybe this moment to this digital world we live in and how some of those pressures are unique to women, uh, particularly moms, just to sort of measure themselves and try to, to try to measure up. Yeah. I mean, we are like, I feel like no mom is lacking for new ideas. If anything, the struggle of the mom is how do I measure, how do I, how do I see my motherhood when I look at all these opportunities of things to do with my kids and there aren't possibly enough hours in a day to do them. Hmm. In some ways, I feel like social media has just, moms were already, I mean, the, the thing is, this is sin inside of us, right? So it's not like that wasn't there, but I feel like it's, it is, uh, throwing miracle grow Mm -hmm. on our sin. When we have these opportunities to look at all these moms doing all these great things, and then all of a sudden it looks like, man, I just, I made a cake for their birthday. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm a failure of a mom. We didn't do the Pinterest party. (laughs) So I do, I feel like social media has only exacerbated what's already on the inside of a mom. Yeah, I mean, and there is a realization too, even in parenting, and I've, I've tried to do this the last few years, like, if I don't post this, it's still happening and it's okay. Like, yes. <laughs> sometimes I feel like we live for, like, we're all, we're all like journalists, we're all like photojournalists, and we can't just go to the zoo. We have to, like, strategically <laughs> think all the places we have, we can post pictures so that it looks like we're this really fun family at the zoo instead of actually just, you know, being a fun Living family the at the zoo, right? You know, we were, my husband and I actually took a vacation to Hawaii to celebrate our 40th birthdays. And, and one of the, um, flyers on the wall said, come make luau's. It's an Instagrammable moment. <laughs> and I just thought this is actually such a picture of our culture. We mm-hmm. work backwards. Like what's the picture and let me create the moment around it. And it is, yeah. you know, we laugh, but it is actually really sad because there is so much beauty that we're missing. It, it's not even, again, I don't think it's the stop doing this bad thing. I think it's the Man, how is this stealing from us the real joy of experiencing God in a moment? Mm-hmm. 
you know, we need to make the mundane exciting by posting it to Instagram. And he's saying, I'm in the mundane. Right. You don't have to make it exciting. You can see me here. Yeah. And what are we trying to say? Not not that posting stuff's bad, but it's just like, what what are we trying to project here by always having to like set up these perfect shots and like, <laughs> you know, and it gets kind of wearisome too. Uh, and then just, you know, it's freeing to realize, man, I can just enjoy this. Like, I always wonder that too, like on birthdays and anniversaries, and I don't think any of this is bad. I think it's actually good, but you know, my wife is like the most beautiful, most important person ever. And, and it's like, she's not even on Twitter. So like, why, why don't I just go tell her that, you know, like instead yeah. of projecting that to the world, you know, there's this sort of impulse to, to project a, ourselves as the kind of person that we're not, you know? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think, Again, it's inherent in our nature. I think it was there long before social media, but I think it just requires us to be more thoughtful about what is going to make my soul come alive Mm -hmm. before God. One of the chapters I think is really good is uh, chapter six, where you talk about invitation to wonder, training our eyes Mm. to see God's beauty. Can you speak a little bit about what you're trying to get at there? You know, I've just noticed that with the pace of life, um, I have noticed over time that I can miss some of the... Um, not even just the beauty in a moment, but really how God shows up in the, in the everyday. And um, during a stretch of time where life was most full, I had just published a book. And at that point in time, I had five kids and was homeschooling. I mean, it just was a very full time. I found myself kind of waiting and saving like the leftover time for that's when I'm going to really look for God in the places where he is, the places where maybe 30 years ago we would have more naturally seen him if we didn't have a phone in our back pocket. And so what I started to do real practically was I would just carve into my schedule a couple times a week something I called a wonder hour, where I would put, I had this antique key that I would put on the door to signify to the kids, don't interrupt me. Mm. And I'd read poetry or read some kind of novel or scripture that would open my eyes to just the beauty around me. I'd take a walk outside. It wasn't like, I mean, I actually chose the most productive hour of my day, the middle of the afternoon, which for me was the most productive, to kind of consciously say, I'm going to fast productivity here Mm. and look for God and see what happens with the rest of my life in the Mm. meantime. And it was, I, I mean, really that stretch of time, and it looks a little bit different now, for me, but in the same way, I still find that I have to fight to open my eyes to see wonder. But when I do, I feel like the rest of my life starts to fall into place a little bit mm. more. It's almost like saying, God, you just saying with our time, you're the most important thing. Mm-hmm. I want to find you in my day. And then can you put the other pieces together? Yeah, it seems like uh, what we're looking for is not necessarily balance, which I don't really like using, but just healthy rhythms, right? So, yes. you know, we're called to live in a digital world. We're not gonna, we're not gonna go back to, you know, a previous era. This, this is we have to be faithful in this time. But how, how do we create healthy rhythms? Uh, what are some of the things that have helped you, Sarah, in trying to think through rhythms of work and rest and 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 all those things? I think for me, one of the key things has been identifying what happens to me when I get lost on social media. Um, because if I just see it as like kind of a Lenten thing, you know, I'm just going to fast this thing. Mm-hmm. I, it ends up, I, I create an adversarial relationship with something that is actually just morally neutral if I can let it be. Um, and, and and it ends up making more traffic in my mind for me than it actually needs to be. So if I notice, wait, if I start to notice over a given day, if I've spent more time on social media, I actually feel worse about myself. I'm less present with my kids. I'm grumpy. Mm-hmm. And instead of getting ideas 
about new pro- new creative projects, my creativity dries up, then over time, when I start to take more and more note of that, I want to stop doing that thing in the way that I was doing it. And so that's kind of the first key for me is identifying this is tied to my heart. And if I if I let it impact my heart this way, then I don't write as well. I always I say to my husband often, you know, my power alley is quiet and alone with God. Mm. That is when the best writing comes. So if I fill that time with surfing social media, mm. you know, I, I don't write as well. And so mm. when I start to see that, then it's more it's easier for me to go, okay, let's not let's only pick up my phone a couple times today and when I actually need to do something with it. If I'm going to be on Instagram, let me be on it for a purpose, like to encourage friends to see what they're doing in their world. And at the point where I start to compare myself, I put the phone down and I repent because Mm. I just don't want to go down that road. Mm. That's really, really helpful. I want to end by just talking a little bit about uh, something we haven't discussed, but as a big part of your story is is the fact that uh, you and your husband are adoptive parents and how adoption has really formed kind of the foundation for some some of your writing and some of your the work that you do. Explain how how adoption was kind of a catalyst for some of this as well. Oh my goodness. I mean, even now I would say today even it's very present for me just as as our kids get older and our desire to protect their stories and have them be their own. Um, it has made the life in between our four walls in some ways very hidden. Even even they I, I mean they too will walk in this and it's something that we teach them in as best as we can in, in their young years. But we aren't the typical American family and the aches and pains that we walk through as we steward their stories and their heartache and their brokenness. In some ways, I find myself just wanting to explain one more time to my friends or one more time to, you know, uh, in, a, in a more public setting, can you just get what this looks like for us? Because there's something about identification that makes me feel some level of relief. But because of the nature of my children's stories and the nuances of that in our home, I've found that it's an intentional way that the Lord has hidden me where he says, I'm the only one who knows the pain of what you walk through as a mom as you wait in the long and the quiet to see God healing this child's heart. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm the one. I, I, I feel the tenderness and nearness of God um, in a way that I don't know that I would if everybody really got me and got my children's stories and got the complications of us in our home. So in some ways, I think... I didn't realize this with adoption, that it would kind of sequester us into a more hidden place. Um, but it has felt really holy. It has felt like he is near, the word says he's near to the brokenhearted. And our kids, in many ways, mm. are being healed from broken hearts. And so it, feel, it feels like there's a nearness in our home, but one we can't really always talk about, even with some of our dearest friends, because their kids are friends with our kids. Mm. And so this becomes more of a, we, we're cultivating more conversation with God around it. Mm. Maybe speak a word to the adoptive family who is just really feeling it. You know, they made this big move. They obeyed the call that God put on their heart. And when now it's here and it's live and it's hard and messy. Maybe if you could speak a word of encouragement to an adoptive family that might be listening. Well, you know, what I could say to them is what I honestly was saying to myself this morning. I mean, literally just this morning. This is your golden hour. Mm. You know, I think in many ways we want our kids to be made whole so we can go on to living normal lives. And one of the things actually my husband's been just saying to me is we didn't sign up for normal. Mm. And so in the ache and in the pain and in the wait, because sometimes it's decades, we're waiting decades to watch God come and restore the years the locusts have eaten. Mm. In that wait, there is gold for you as a parent because you will see a side of God that you wouldn't have otherwise seen 
maybe if your kids were normal. And I think that's universal, like in terms of, it's not just adoption, every kind of ache that each mm. one of us is walking through, the waiting room isn't just you're stuck, it's an invitation from God. Mm. Well, Sarah Haggerty, we're, we're really thankful for your ministry, I am, and grateful for oh, thank the you. heart you have for the Lord and for this great book, Unseen, that, that I know is going to uh, really be a, a great resource for a lot of people. We'll put a link to it on our show notes page, but thank you for taking time out of your busy day to, to join us today. Oh, Dan, I so appreciate being on here. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Way Home Podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please let us know by writing a review on iTunes. You can catch previous episodes on danieldarling.com. The Way Home is produced by Gary Lancaster and scheduling by Marie Delft. The Way Home is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention.